Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 110, and we're going to talk about building out your van if you're a non-carpenter. That is, you either don't know how to do carpentry, don't want to do carpentry, or for some reason can't do carpentry. We're also going to talk about adding seats in the back of your van that have seat belts so you can have a passenger. We're going to do a product review of a water flosser and a resource recommendation of a wonderful book I just read. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for being here. First, a few little updates of of news, as it were. I did publish two videos this week. One of them is a full detailed review of the set power fridge that I've been talking about for a while now. Folks, I love the fridge. I totally tore it apart, put it through its paces, did all kinds of sound testing and all this stuff, and I love the fridge. I think for the price, it's a great fridge. And... If you go to setpowerusa.com and use the code built to go you will receive at least 12% off your order of an AJ30 or one of the other fridges that's in that range. But folks, I really do love the fridge, and if you want to see why, you can check out that video. There's a link in the show notes. And the other video I will talk about in the Places to Visit section, because I made a video about a visit last year to the historic Tonopah Mining Park which is a fun place, and so there's a video of that too. So if you like what I say about the places to visit in the podcast, you can go watch the video as well. That said, let's jump into this week's episode. Oh, wait, one thing I forgot. I have my van back, and it's running, and everything seems to be fine now after this whole big, giant ordeal. <sighs> Holy cow. It is, uh, it is so frustrating. Right now, my van seems to be fine. It's running great. Everything seems to be working. There's no codes. The check engine light is off. It kind of smells badly of diesel, but I think that's because so much diesel poured over the engine that it actually just needs to be washed, which I will do as soon as it's above freezing, and I figure out how. But I'm back to building out my van, and that is what's got me thinking about this topic for this week, and that is how to build out your van if you're a non-carpenter. Now, I am a non-carpenter. I have owned a lot of carpentry equipment in my life, and I've actually done a fair amount of carpentry. I mean, I've built things, I've modified things, but I've never been very good at it. I, I just am not. I suck at measuring things. I am one of these people that measures three times, cuts five times, and it's still too short. I just can't do it. It is the weirdest thing to me that I will take a piece of wood and measure it against another piece of wood and draw a line and cut on that line and I end up with two different sizes of wood. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. But because of that, I try to avoid it at all costs. Now, if you're new to this channel, know that I built out an NV200 with no carpentry at all. The entire thing is made out of Ikea parts that I installed into the van without doing any heavy carpentry. I mean, of course, I cut a piece of wood here and there and I screwed some things in, but mostly nothing required any measuring of anything because that's that's my problem right there. So in this new van, which is an ambulance, I have a lot more space and I'm more open to doing carpentry, but the situation I'm in now is such that I don't have any place to do carpentry. All the work I do in this van, I either have to do in my living room, which my wife may not be too thrilled with, or in the van itself. And right now I'm working on the bed. 
So in the van right now, I have this bed that is an Ikea bed. It's just a regular old Ikea bed that I literally threw in there so I could pass the RV requirements for the state of Illinois. It was never meant to be the permanent bed. It's not very comfortable, but it was very inexpensive and it was serviceable. That has to go though. It, it can't be part of my permanent build. But one quick note on that, um, for a non-carpenter, the bed I bought was too wide, so I was actually able to simply cut it and then duplicate the holes that Ikea had put in there and then put it back together. And you know what? That worked great. That is totally something you can do. If you go to Ikea and they sell a bed that is too long or too wide, you absolutely can just cut those and then duplicate the holes and then the dowels and the screws and the cams or however it's put together will totally fit in the right place. You just have to be careful. If I can do it, you can do it. So that is an option. There's a, there's a thing you can do. But I don't. this bed has to come out. So I've been racking my brains on how to put a bed in here that does two things. It needs to be a bed, obviously, but it also needs to be a comfortable place to sit. Now, this is a 144 wheelbase sprinter. That's the short sprinter. Even though it has the high top, it's the short sprinter. And because I'm six feet tall, that means there has to be some compromises. For example, I can't sleep side to side. I just don't fit, and it would be very uncomfortable, and I know the way I sleep that I have to be fully stretched out or I'm going to be uncomfortable. That means I have to run a bed from the back to the front. And because it's an ambulance and it's already partially built out, I have to put that bed on the side that has the sliding door. The other side's all these cabinets and I'm not moving them. But I also want some storage. I have an inflatable kayak I want to be able to travel with. I have my College of Curiosity kits that hopefully I will be able to get back on the road with and you guys can come see the College of Curiosity Roadshow someday. Um, but I need space to store those things. And, you know, groceries or whatever else I happen to buy, I want some space. So when I build the bed, it has to be kind of raised up so I can put stuff under it. Now, I can't do a formal garage. I mean, you see all these vans where they install a full-time bed in the back and then underneath is the garage. I can't do that. I can't do that because it's not wide enough. And if I go the full length that way, I don't have any bed left. <laughs> Six feet from the back door actually goes past the slider a little bit. So I'm very limited on space. Okay, so I'm a, not a carpenter, right? So I'm looking online and, oh, yeah, that's all very nice, but somebody had to do some, use some real skill for that. And, oh, here's somebody else, but, oh, look at that nice table saw they have. And you know, I'm looking at all this stuff thinking, I could possibly do that if I had a shop, but I don't have a shop. So can I get a shop? I mean, yeah, I could go visit my buddy Hal in Colorado with a bunch of stuff. I bet he would be willing to help me out. Right, Hal? I think he would. Or I could maybe join a makerspace or I could rent a garage. And I've looked at all these options and there are reasons why they won't work. For Hal, the only reason is that he's in Colorado and I'm in Chicago. But for the others, it's a matter of, it's a lot of money. And I am not a quick worker. I'm a ponderous worker. So when I am working on the van, I am constantly taking breaks and reconsidering and reimagining what I'm doing. I would be the most frustrating person to work with in the van. But since I'm doing it all by myself, it's fine. I'm just thinking of different ways of doing things. Okay, so you're not me. You may get any of those things to work. But honestly, if you don't know Hal, it would be kind of rude to just show up at his house and try to get him to build something for you. I figured out a way to do this with... <laughs> Ikea, of course, 
that I can do a minimum amount of carpentry. Now I will make a video of this and I'm not really promoting this as the perfect bed for a van. I'm more interested in sharing with you the process by which I got here. So I didn't start with the bed. I started with the storage. So I thought, okay, I need to have storage. What can I buy that will serve as storage and also be a platform for the bed? And I looked at a bunch of different options and I settled on what's called calyx, which is these Ikea bookshelves. They're very common. I mean, if you have a bookshelf from Ikea, it's probably either a calyx or a billy. And this isn't the billy. This is the, this is the really sturdy, really beefy kind of bookcase that kind of takes over the whole store if you ever go to Ikea. And they come in different configurations. But the one I picked was four boxes tall by one box wide, or as I'm going to install it, four boxes across by one box high. And, and here's one of the benefits of this. You can get different things to put in the cubes. You can get all kinds of drawers and doors of different sizes. It's very configurable. And this thing is very strong for its weight. So that's going to be my base for the bed. Now the bed is going to be bigger than this thing, but this, this is the key. So for me, I started out with just getting four drawers. Now these aren't attached in any way. And the idea is that they can slide out and they're actually baskets. They're fabric baskets and I can pick them up and move them around. So if I have like, say some barbecue equipment in one, I can pick that up and move it right to the picnic table outside and pull out my stove and my tongs and whatever I want, and then just bring it back in. And I'm going to put a lip at the bottom so that these can't slide out very flexible. And this piece of furniture only costs $50. So that's the key right there. I have a base piece of furniture. Now I have a starting point and everything else is modifying that to make it work. Okay. So the next step is what about a bed? Now I want a bed that can be a couch with a back that will slide out and go flat into a bed. And I thought about different mechanisms I could use. I thought, well, I could have a, a plywood base with a piano hinge and the back could go up and down. And then I could make some sliders and slide the thing out and flop it down. Or I could even do that slat in slat design that everybody loves that just looks like a pain in the butt to me. But then I thought, maybe I don't want to reinvent the wheel here. I mean, okay, let's say I did all the carpentry and got the plywood to work. I would still need to buy foam and cover it with something. And I'd have to fiddle with the mechanism until it was just right. And what if there was a piece of furniture that actually does this already? And you know what? There is. I found it. I tried it out today and I actually bought it. And it's sitting in my living room. And that is called Balcarp. B-A-L-K-A-R-P. It is a couch that Ikea sells that is basically an armless couch and the back is adjustable and it will fold flat. And when it folds flat, you basically have a twin size bed. Now this bed comes in two sizes. There's a 73 inch one and a 67 inch one. I got the 73 inch because I'm 72 inches long, but if you were shorter or you had some other idea about what to do to make the bed longer, you could get the shorter one. You can't just stick this in the van. Well, you could, you could totally buy this and stick it in the van and be done. I mean, if you were doing a no build, Balcarp will be your couch and your bed, and you will have to install nothing. Zero carpentry. It's a little bit raised off the floor, so you can put some stuff into it. You would need to make sure it didn't roam around the back of your van somehow, but you could do that. You would have 
a major bit of your furniture done just by buying this. Now, I want this to be on top of the Calyx bookshelf. And so what I'm going to do, and already did, is I'm not going to install the legs. I'm going to sit this on top of the bookshelf and have some slidey parts so it will slide out and fold down. The bookshelf doesn't take up all the space I need it to. It's not long enough and it doesn't reach to the side of the van. So I'm going to use some planks and fill out the space. And this is another key tip. Normally you would think, well, I'll just get a piece of plywood and cut it to size. But again, we're talking about no carpentry here, or at least limited carpentry. By using planks, I have small pieces of wood that are much easier to work with inside the van. It may cost me a bit more, but planks, and I, by planks I just mean by, you know, 1x12 or 1x8 pieces of pine or whatever I end up finding. They're going to be supported underneath by 2x4s that I'll attach to the side of the van and to the bookcase, but they're basically just going to be planks that are laid down, and they will adjust to the curvature of the van individually, which I can do with no problem. And this is going to give me a nice little secret compartment underneath the bed. So it took me a while to come up with this solution, and I still have things to sort out for the front and the back, and there's only so much I can tell you in a podcast without showing you. Again, I will have a YouTube video. But here's the takeaway from this. If you don't want to do carpentry, make everything a smaller project. Don't get a big piece of plywood. Get littler pieces of wood that are easier to deal with. Pick a base anchor piece of furniture and make everything else work around that. It can be a dresser. It can be a bookcase. It can be a sink base. It could be a kitchen cabinet. Whatever you find that works for you, put that in there and make everything fit around it. And remember that a bed is just a flat space in the van. You can make any flat space into a bed. I mean, my big fancy motorhome that I used to have was just literally a giant piece of plywood. That was the bed, and it was the most comfortable bed I've ever slept in. So I hope you got some tips there. I'm kind of excited about this project, and I'll share more with you as it gets closer to completion. Tech Talk. While we're talking about putting seats in the back of a van... We should address something that comes up fairly often, and this came up a lot with the NV200. Now, in the US, NV200s and the Chevy City Express, which was their relabeled version of it, didn't come with passenger seats in the back. There were two passenger vehicles. There was no option to have passenger seats in the back. You couldn't get them. Meanwhile, in Europe, they had seven passenger versions of NV200, and this caused a lot of confusion because people were like, oh, I picked up a cargo van. Where can I go get seats for it? Well, the answer is, you can't. You can't get any from Nissan anyway. So what if you want to add a seat or two or three? Well, I can tell you that it can be done. And I know this because my ambulance had a seat in the back that was not made by Mercedes. It was added, it was added and it had a seat belt. So let's talk about how you do that. Now, Legally, I have no clue how any of this works. I know that there are government agencies that dictate how seats must be installed and how the seatbelts work and all that, and folks, do not come to me for advice on that. I don't know the answer. So no matter what, you are taking some sort of a risk if you try to put a seat in the back. But if you're going to have passengers riding in it, 
absolutely you want a seat belt. <laughs> and my recommendation would be to find a seat that had a seat belt built into it. That way you know that the seat belt is professionally installed. The seat that came in my ambulance is, is a simple vinyl car seat. It's nothing fancy, but the seat belt is built into it. So your only concern then is attaching the seat to the van. Now, the way it was done in my ambulance was that there was this very heavy-duty steel box that was secured to the floor with four very large bolts and then secured to the seat with four more very large bolts. The thing is, you have to be very careful about how you attach the seat or the base to the van. You want to use something called a spreader, which is really just a giant washer. If you just put a screw and a bolt through, the chances of that ripping out in an accident is pretty high. So make sure that you accident-proof this seat however you put it in there. Now, what if you wanted to go to the junkyard and buy some old car seats? Yeah, that would probably work, but your challenge is going to be attaching them firmly to the floor. And in my opinion, your bolts must go completely through the floor. If you have plywood or flooring, it's got to go through that too. All the way to the underside of the van and then be bolted in place with Loctite, at least the blue, if not the red. And there must be spreaders or very large washers. Typically, a spreader is a washer that has more than one screw hole. Like my ladder that I installed in my van was done with these spreader things. It, it's just a piece of metal with holes in it. That's it. It's not a big concept. So if you have a van, you can put seats in the back. But you have to do some work. You have to be careful. And as far as legality is concerned, boy, I do I just don't know how that works. You may be in a situation where you want to not ask questions, but that's on you. Product review. This is a strange product review, but I've been really enjoying this thing, and I thought I would mention it because it actually does have some van life uses, despite the fact that it is a water flosser. Remember water picks way back in the 70s? No, I'm the only one old enough that remembers that, but I remember them. Well, they've come a long way. And this one that I got from Amazon, oh, about a year ago, actually over a year ago, is made by a company called Initio. That's I-N-I-T-I-O. And imagine a banana, because that seems to be the universal way to measure things these days. Imagine you're holding a banana. <laughs> And that banana is filled with water. And the stem is this very thin piece of plastic with a hole on it. And you turn this thing on, and you run that stem around your teeth, and it basically flosses in between your teeth. And at first I thought, well, okay, this isn't really going to do as much as a regular bit of dental floss. And, well, the dentist may agree with that, but I can tell you that I used to have a lot of problems with dental floss. My last experience with dental floss was that it got stuck, and when I pulled it out, it pulled out $3,000 worth of dental work with it. So flossing is a problem for me. This thing has solved all my problems, and my oral health has significantly improved since I started using this thing. How does it work for van life? It's rechargeable, a charge lasts at least a month, and yeah, you're spraying water in your mouth, and you you could swallow that water, but for some reason I don't want to. So that water is either going <laughs> to dribble down your lip onto your shirt, or you can do it over a sink, or you can do it outside, or you can do it in the shower. As it happens, I do mine in the shower, but that, that doesn't mean anything. It comes with several different tips so you can find the right one that you want, and it has three speeds of spray. There's soft, hard, and then a pulse, and the pulse is what I like. 
But there's another thing this is useful for in van life, and it seems silly, but honestly, this will work. This thing comes with a whole bunch of tips. I recommend you take one of the tips and dedicate it for cleaning. And then you can use this thing to clean all kinds of little things that are really difficult to clean. Like, let's say you've got mud in your shoes and you just can't get it off. This thing will power through. It's like a little power washer. It will power through the mud in all your treads. And you could use it for cleaning just about anything, as long as you remember that there's going to be water everywhere. And you can only use water in this. You don't ever want to put soap in it or mouthwash or anything like that. Now, it is powerful. I would not want to get hit in the eye with this thing. It actually does hurt if you pull it out of your mouth and it hits your skin. It doesn't leave a mark or anything, but it does hurt. So it's pretty powerful. Now, this thing's only 30 bucks, and I think it's great. The, all the water you use is in the handle, so it's all self-contained, which is another reason it works great for van life. You don't want to let it freeze, but other than that, yeah, I think this does have an application for van life, and I like it, and heck, I'm recommending it, and no, they didn't pay me to say that. So I'll have a link to it in the show notes, but if you want to Google for it, it is the Initio Water Flosser, and there are probably other ones out there. This is the only one I've tried, but it works so well, I'm not going to try any of the others. Tales from the Road. Okay, way back, way back, about 1983... I had just gotten my driver's license and I went to a prep school for folks in Massachusetts. I went to St. John's prep and no, I didn't wear boat shoes, but heck I went to the prep school. So I guess I was a preppy, but the tricky part was that the school was in Danvers or if you're from Eastern Massachusetts, Danvers and I lived in Salem and I had to get to Danvers and because it was a prep school there were no public school buses or anything like that. All the kids from all the community around had to find their own way to school. Well, we initially did a parental carpool, but they got pretty sick of that. So they were really eager for us to get our driver's licenses so we could drive ourselves. So in my first year of driving, I got command of a fine vessel, a 1977 LTD-2, which can only be described as a boat. I mean, the hood of this car was bigger than my entire smart car. This was one of these cars that you look out and there's like a, there's an acre of hood in front of you before you see the road. And uh, it wasn't a very reliable car. It wasn't very comfortable. <laughs> I have a lot of bad things to say about this car. But um, it got us to school and that's what really counted. So it was the car. And I was really fortunate to have a car that I could drive when I was 17 or 16 and a half or however old I was. But there was one day when I was learning how to drive in the snow in this massive rear-wheel drive vehicle that I encountered an odd problem. So we had a little carpool of ourselves. The kids would pick each other up on different days. I'd drive Monday, somebody else would drive Tuesday, whatever. And I went to pick up one of those kids, and he lived on a hill. And not a big hill, but, you know, a hill. And I drove up the hill, and the rear wheels started spinning because the road was covered with ice. But, hey, I'm a stupid kid, so I step on the gas harder, because that's what you're not supposed to do. And the car moves up a little bit and then starts moving backwards, and I step on the gas harder, and it moves backwards faster. And I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? Because on either side of the street, there's nothing but cars. If my car veers left or right, it is going to smash into a car. And I realize this as I'm sliding backwards down this hill with no way to stop the car. And then somehow 
using skills that I didn't know I have and I'm still not sure I have, I managed to manipulate the steering wheel in such a way that the car would slow if I'd made an S shape as I went down the hill. And then at one point, when I knew I was about to lose control, I cranked the wheel all the way to the right, stepped on the brakes, and the car slid sideways down the hill and came to a perfect stop, three inches from a car in front of it and three inches from a car behind it. And then I realized I couldn't move. <laughs> I had boxed myself in by sliding sideways down the street, and the only way I could get that car out of there was to get out and go knock on the doors of the people who lived on the street and hope I could find someone who owned one of those cars who could move it. And as luck had it, I picked the right door the first time. This guy answers the door and he's half asleep. And all I had to do was point at my car and he knew what was going on. <laughs> but he absolutely did a double take. Because if you were to take a snapshot of this, you would have thought there was no way I could have gotten my car in that position until you realized that I started at the top of the hill and slid sideways down the hill. Anyway, lesson here is uh, don't drive on ice-covered hills. Walk or something. I mean, holy cow, they're not safe to drive on, especially in a beast like a 1977 Ford LTD2. A place to visit. I like Nevada, and it's not just because I like watching Wonder Hussy on YouTube, it's that I like Nevada. I like its openness, I like that everywhere I go there are no people, I really like that. And I have driven the loneliest road in the country a few times, and I've always been intrigued by Tonopah. Tonopah is this oasis of a town, it's, it's basically the only town anywhere near there, and they have a supermarket and gas stations and hotels, and yes, a casino. It's also the home of the famous Clown Motel, if you've ever heard of that. There's a really cool cemetery there, too, that I have a video of that I will probably put up soon. But, on this most recent trip, which was May, I visited the historic Tonopah Mining Park. So, Tonopah, big surprise is there because there were mines there. And that's basically how towns came to exist in Nevada. And on the hill overlooking the town, there's a group of massive mines that have been turned into a tourist attraction. And you can just go and poke around and look at all this stuff. Now, you can't go in the mines because that's not safe. But you can see a lot of the mining equipment that was left behind. And it's a way to do urban exploration without being a jerk, you know, you don't have to break any laws, you don't have to risk anything, but you kind of get that same sense that you're in spaces that are privileged spaces. And the day I went to see it, I was the only person there. And it was really kind of fun to imagine what things must have been like when they were in full operation. And these were not little mines. There's one room that has all this amazing equipment, and it was the hoist room for a very, very deep mine. And I, it's just amazing that that is just left there when it had to cost incredible amounts of money to build. So if you're driving through Tonopah, take a couple hours and poke around this museum. They have a museum. You watch a video, you see the museum stuff and their exhibits. But the real treat here is to hike around and see all the old mine stuff. And when I say hike... Yeah, this is a place that you will burn some calories. It's on the side of a hill. You have to walk up and down. You get to go through the burrow tunnel. You get to go over some stopes. And, oh yeah, if you're afraid of heights, mm, there are some parts here you won't like. 
But if you're at all intrigued, go ahead and check out the video on YouTube that I put up. It's called A Visit to the Historic uh, to the a visit to Tonopah Historic Mining Park, and it's 12 minutes of me poking around all these places and talking about some of the weird stuff I found. Resource recommendation. I am so in love with a book I just read, and I don't normally do book reviews on here. I mean, I do sometimes, but this book has nothing to do with van life specifically, but it has everything to do with life specifically. Those of you who've been following this podcast for a while know about Hook Walk a Bang. You know that I give out stickers and you see it around if you look at any of my stuff. And it's basically question mark greater than exclamation point. Those words, Hook Walk a Bang, being the cartoon terms for those characters. But why? What does it mean? Well, I tell people what I think it means and I invite them to have their own interpretations. But now there's a whole book written about what it means. Scout Mindset by Julia Galef presents the argument that we should approach life as a scout, that is a truth seeker, rather than as a soldier, that is someone who is defensive, who's trying to stand their ground and attack. A scout does nothing more than gather information and come to provisional conclusions from that. Now, Julia has written this book in such a way that it's a bit of a self-help book in that if you read this book, she will give you ways to feel better about things, like being wrong. Julia points out something that I've long believed, and that is that if you are wrong about something, congratulations, you have learned something, you know more than you used to, and you're a better person for it. Therefore, you don't need to defend against being wrong. You can embrace it with gratitude. If that concept sounds intriguing to you, I highly recommend you pick up this book. Now, I listened to the audiobook, which is read by Julia, and full disclosure, Julia and I sort of move around in the same circles. She has been to conferences that I've put on and things like that, but it's not somebody I know. I've respected her from afar, and she doesn't know who I am, so I'm not shilling a book of a friend. I am absolutely 100% thinking this book is for anybody who has any sense of curiosity and love for objective truth. <sighs> okay, is that enough praise for you? I mean, I could give you more praise, but no, that, that's, that's what I've got here. If you are intrigued by this, the audiobook is about six hours long. I listen to it at one and a half speed because that's how I usually listen to things. Julia is a wonderful narrator because she also does a podcast called Rationally Speaking that she used to do with Massimo Piliucci, who's a philosopher, and it's been on the air for 10 years. So I will have a link to the podcast, the book, and folks, really, if you want to feel better about yourself, definitely read The Scout Mindset. Well, folks, thank you very, very much for listening. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg, and I can't wait to get back on the road. So in the coming weeks, I should be on the road and be able to tell you about new adventures with my van that will run reliably, or so I'm told. And until next time, remember these sacred words by Dorothy Parker. The cure for boredom is curiosity. There is no cure for curiosity.